Hello, my name is Ella Leighton, and I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. Today, I'm interviewing Bhaktasha Hadi, an award-winning documentary filmmaker, storyteller, and executive leadership coach. Thank you so much for sitting down with me for this conversation, and we're excited for the film screening tonight. So the first question I have is, Retrograde depicts close friendly relationships between General Sami Sadat and Afghan troops with U.S. Special Forces. The announcement of Biden's withdrawal greatly disappoints them both. What is your perspective on the U.S. withdrawal in 2021? And given the length of U.S. presence in Afghanistan, do you think the withdrawal has caused more harm than benefit for Afghan soldiers as well as civilians? Well, first and foremost, I'd love to say that um, I thank you and your colleagues for having me and for sharing um, this film and giving me the opportunity to kind of share my voice. So thank you for that. Now, as it pertains to retrograde, Retrograde, for those listening, is a film that depicts the last nine months of the United States involvement in Afghanistan to include the chaos at the airport. Now, President Biden in May of 2021 announced that we're going to withdraw. What's interesting about that whole approach is I think those that were studying Afghanistan, those that were paying attention, those from the country, those that have served, and those that were advising the president, in some sense knew that what was happening in Afghanistan was not sustainable. So I think it wasn't about the United States leaving, it was about how it was going to leave. And the ways in which the president decided to leave was disastrous. And we know this because once the troops were pulled out, once the American troops were pulled out, more were sent back in to kind of help manage things at the airport. And everybody who's listening remembers watching those horif horrific, the horrific footage of what happened at the airport. Now, what's really curious is I'm sharing all this because there could have been a better way. Obviously, there could have been a better way. Um, so I think that's the most important thing that I want to kind of just share. There could have been a better way. What that looks like, I don't know exactly, but what happened was obviously not the right approach. Now, the other thing is this. I think many Americans, many Afghans that served, they gave so much to that war, so much to America's longest war. What's really curious is the whole approach, the whole experience, started with 9-11, 2001, September 11th. 20 years later, almost to the date, the United States withdraws. Now, what's really interesting is so many soldiers, Afghans and Americans alike, gave to that war. Some of them made the ultimate sacrifice. And I'm sitting here with you today, Ella, as somebody who also served I was a military interpreter for three years. My father was a military interpreter. Many of my friends, both Americans and Afghans, served for that war. A lot of people gave a lot. Some people made the ultimate sacrifice and gave their lives. And so, just to kind of put some numbers out there, there's something like three million enlisted, enlisted military people in the military now. Americans, Americans. Over the course of 20 years, over a million of them have been and served in Afghanistan. 
just think of what that means, not just for them, but also their families. Okay? On top of that, it's uncertain, but as a matter of the amount of lives that were shed on the Afghan side was something like 250,000. Okay? And those figures are probably low. And so we really have to kind of calculate what the cost of war is here. Because the group that we tried to oust in Afghanistan in 2001 that was harboring Al-Qaeda is now back in power. That is something worth discussing. And so I think many people that served, Afghans and Americans alike, are very upset about that. Very upset about the simple simple fact that the force and the group, the insurgent group that we are trying to fight against is now in power. That should tell you that, well, I think that makes retrograde significant. I think many, for many years to come, and colleges, college campuses all over the United States, all over the world, are going to use retrograde and other artifacts like it as a way to kind of talk about America's longest war. So just to recap, I think there could have been a better approach. And I think those that served are obviously suffering. Next question is, I've noticed that for each of your films from the Tallinn Project, you've had different roles in the filmmaking process. Uh, some people don't know what these roles entail. So could you explain some of the key responsibilities of a translator and a producer? Yeah. Well, filmmaking is an interesting, beautiful, and, well, relentless craft. It takes a lot to make a film. And it takes a tribe to make a film. And so the whole project is about vision, implementation, and collaboration. And so I got involved in film initially through my language skills. I got involved and was invited to work on a film called Frame by Frame as a translator initially. And I loved the process so much that I got involved as a producer and brought funds into the project. And once the film premiered, went around with the film team to talk about what the film was all about. So I became an impact producer along the way. Um, now I'm in a place where I'm producing, directing, writing, all the above. And really what you can kind of think about, if, I can, if you want, I can kind of go through the difference between maybe a producer and a director and what that looks like. A producer is somebody that helps the director make the best film possible. And the director's responsibility is to make the best film possible through their vision of what they want the story to be. So there are all different types of producers. Field producers, associate producers, producers, co-producers, executive producers, you name it. There's all different types. So what that means is everybody has their own silo and or craft to kind of pursue. So all producers had to have a different sense of responsibility. Everybody from a field producer to an archival producer to a producer to an executive producer. And so everybody that is a producer in some sense not only contributes to the film but also elevates the film. So there are different types. So an archival producer will go in to archives and pull out relevant footage that will add and aid the story. A field producer is one that is on the ground that is kind of working with subjects to make things happen before the director arrives to a specific site. A producer, the producer for example, 
works hand in hand with the director to get the director what he or she needs to make the best film possible. And the director is really about orchestrating this whole thing, telling people where to be, when to be, how to shoot, what to shoot, and what ways to shoot. And then executive producers come on board to elevate the film project either through financing or through knowledge and or intelligence related to a specific topic, as well as some executive producers are celebrities, so they elevate the film just by being associated with it. And so, just to kind of repeat, a producer is somebody that helps the director tell the best story. And then the director is responsible for telling the best story. You talk a lot about telling stories, about bringing visibility to those deemed other. Um, so who are you making these stories visible to? Who is the intended audience of Retrograde specifically? And what impact do you want to see from the audience? Yeah. Well, I'd love for as many people to watch Retrograde as possible. And the reason why is because the film captures the end of America's longest war and how much Americans and Afghans alike gave to that war, gave to something that they believed in, gave to something that we believed in. So for that reason, I think it has historical relevance. And uh, relevance is a matter of the zeitgeist, what's happening here today. And I share this with you because something, something like 100,000 Afghan refugees are placed and littered all over the United States. After the collapse and takeover of Kabul, many of them left on military planes. And now they're in towns all across America, just like Carlisle, Pennsylvania. In fact, there's something like 25 families that I know that are here right now. So Afghan refugees are all over the United States. So the film Retrograde offers a perspective of how they came to be, how they came to be in these small little towns in America. And so for that reason, it's relevant because it gives some context in terms of what people went through, the heartache, the tragedy. The film is not a happy film. It's a good film because it was made well about something that was very horrific in a time that will never be repeated. And so I'd love for as many people to watch the film as possible. And what I would love for people when they watch the film is to not only gain a sense of compassion for people that have given to the war, Americans, Afghans, those in uniform, but also those that are here now, separated from their families, here all alone. You know, we um, in America are dealing with a divided, a divided nation. And what I'm most concerned about is, well, what this means for us. And so the work that I do in the Talim project that I'm a part of fundamentally believes that conversation is the most important tool that we have to understanding. And I hope retrograde in the films that I'm a part of offer a catalyst for curiosity so that people are interested in other people, are curious enough to engage them and ask them about their experience and to lead with a sense of radical curiosity, Ella. That's what I think is really important. And this model and this approach can be applied to those that exist on the other side of the political spectrum that we are not a part of. This can exist for anybody who we perceive to be the other, them, not us, thinking. 
And so I think what's needed in this moment going forward is a radical sense of curiosity about others, this idea that we need to look beyond our bias and believe that the person sitting across from us actually may know something that we don't, actually may can offer us, actually can offer something that may actually elevate our lives if we have the willingness to ask them about their experience. So instead of saying, I can't believe you, you, you believe this, or I can't believe you support this person, or I can't believe this is the way you approach your life, that is one approach. I'm not sure if it's helping. In fact, I don't think it helps anybody when we think that way and actually say these things. But instead, asking a simple question like, Ella, that's an interesting perspective. Can you help me understand where that comes from? Then all of a sudden that question opens up your experience and allows for a sense of openness. But if I ask you, I can't believe, if I say something like, I can't believe you believe that, or why do you believe that? It becomes a defensive stance that you take. It almost feels like an attack. So we actually have to become better conversationalists. That is what I tell people all the time. We actually in this moment have to become not only curious, but better at being conversationalists. That requires listening and questioning. Listening and questioning. It sounds so simple, but it's not easy. It's simple, but not easy. So that's what I would love for people to kind of take away from this film, is a sense of curiosity about people that, that are in their towns and in our towns and in our neighborhoods, and to be curious about their experience, to learn from them. And I share this with you because my family came to America from Afghanistan over 30 years ago. My parents still live in Carolina. And we stayed here all this time because people were curious about us. People were interested in what we had to offer. And that's what, what it means, I think, in a, to be an American. We should be unified based on our diversity, not divided because of it. Thank you. Uh, next question is, I assume that before filming people, you must gain a certain level of trust in your film subjects. So how did you and other filmmakers of retrograde build trust with the U.S. and Afghan troops? And how does filming in an active war zone influence the filming process? Hmm. When it comes to filmmaking, especially about topics that are sensitive, especially about gaining access into people's lives, trust is of utmost importance. Without trust, you don't have a film. Because what that means is you don't have a sense of authenticity from your subjects. So many people, like I said in the beginning of this conversation, were responsible for making this film. It takes a tribe to make a film. And the producers of this film, in particular, Kate, Caitlin McNally, who was the producer of this film, she was paramount in establishing trust with the U.S. military to gain access. Retrograde, although it captures the last nine months of United States involvement in Afghanistan, started to be put in place many years before. This was initially a film about the Green Berets and just the Green Berets. But since President Biden announced the withdrawal, it became a different film. But prior to that, it was supposed to be a film about the Green Berets. And so 
the producers of this film had to spend countless hours gaining trust with the U.S. Green Berets. That takes time, that takes energy, that takes curiosity. And that's really what it's about, sitting down with people and giving them a sense of who you are and letting them know what your vision for the film is and for this project. Because if they don't trust you, it's not going to work. You won't make it to the end. Filmmaking, in some sense, is, a, is an intimate relationship. And so, people have to trust that what they offer you and what you capture will be depicted in an honest, real, in an honest and real way. That's what I would say. It's of paramount importance for people to trust you. What was your second question? How does filmmaking in an active war zone influence the filming process? Are there any things that are conventional in a non-active war zone that get altered when you are in an active war zone? Yeah, since the film captures the last nine months of a war, of America's longest war, all you can do is hope for the best. This film was made by three cinematographers. Tim Gushko, Olivia Sarbil, and Matt Heineman. Matt Heineman's also the director. They were the ones on the ground capturing day in and day out, over and over and over again. And you'd have to ask them what that was like on a, on a very deep and personal level. But what I would say, having lived in a war zone, is that you never know what's going to happen. And you never know when something of significance is going to happen. An attack, a mission, any kind of action. You just kind of have to sit and wait. And when something happens, you have to be ready. So the cameras always have to either be on or nearly on, <laughs> on standby. And that's the thing about being a filmmaker in a war zone. You just never know. You were treated like a soldier, but you're there to capture the moment. You have to think like a soldier, but you have to be there to capture the moment. That's the difference. And so what I would say is filming in a war zone is very unpredictable. It's scary. For some, it's very exhilarating. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand when they watch the film is, I want people to ask the question, how did they make this film? How, what would it take to make this film? And what would it be like to be behind the camera while making this film? Or to follow up with that, um, photojournalists in active war zones document important tragedies for the rest of the world to see, but this act of document documenting may also be deemed intrusive to their pain and grief. How did you balance uh, trying to capture tragedy without overstepping boundaries while working on retrograde? And then how is this complicated by your identity as an Afghan-American? To the first part of the question about documenting tragedy, we get permission from the subjects. If they're comfortable, and if it's in a place whereby something of historical significance is happening, in some sense, 
it is our moral obligation to document it. I mean, ultimately, documentarians are journalists. We're journalists. We capture what happens in the moment. Imagine what would happen if all the historical tragedies had been documented. Just imagine what World War II would have been like, World War I, the Civil War. Can you imagine how much knowledge we would have collectively? So in some sense, we as documentarians have a moral obligation to capture the wrongdoings of what has happened to us as, as human beings. How else will we learn if we don't document? So that's what I would say, is you have to get permission from your subjects, and then also there is a level of moral obligation. If we don't do this, who will? And it's not to say that we're going to document above all. Like if I had to choose between saving a life and documenting the moment, I'm going to save a life. But if something tragic happens and it's beyond something that I can do, then we are going to capture it. I think many journalists will tell you that. Many photojournalists will tell you that. And many documentarians will tell you that. What's not discussed is what this does to our psyche. Many documentarians that I know that work in war zones, journalists, photojournalists, filmmakers, suffer from PTSD because you're there experiencing it. And then when you watch the footage, it's like experiencing it again and again and again. But this is what we do. This is what we sign up for. I feel like it's a moral obligation. The identity piece of being an African-American plays into that. If we don't document it as Afghans and as Americans, this war, then who will? I'm in this line of work because when I was a kid, I used to want to see films made about Afghanistan. I couldn't. There weren't any. And if they were, they were always... They were always about the Soviets or some, something else. But it was never a film that, gosh, that really spoke to the realities on the ground. And that's why I make films, Ella. I make films to be a good ancestor. One day a grandchild of mine, or a great-grandchild of mine, is going to want to know what this time was about and what it was like. And they're going to be grateful for people that have captured this moment at this time. And so I encourage people to document their family stories, to talk to their parents, to hear the stories of their grandparents while, while they're still alive. Because one day, when they aren't with us anymore, we'll deeply regret it. So we, in some sense, are the bearers of that responsibility. And that's why I make documentary films. Because I had wished, when I was young, that I could watch... What was actually happening in Afghanistan? And I know many people are going to wish that, well, in future generations. I know many people that come from other countries wish that about their homeland. I wonder what my parents' lives were like. I wonder what we were running from. I wonder what our neighborhoods were like. And so I think documenting is actually um, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to yourself, those around you, those that you care about, the future generations to come. Um, last question. 
Uh, why are films such a compelling form of media to tell stories, especially refugee and immigrant stories? Why did you not choose another artistic medium, visual or otherwise? Yeah, it's a great question. There are many ways to depict and to start a conversation about loss and renewal. That's what the refugee experience is actually about. Loss and renewal. Filmmaking for me, I've stepped into this space and I've chosen to be in this space because I think it's the most powerful way to depict and to show an experience. Why? Because it's audio and it's visual. When you step into a theater, it becomes an experience. People say, did you watch this film? Did you watch that film? We're using the wrong verb in my opinion. We should ask, we should be asking, did you experience that film? Or how did you experience it? That's why the score is so crucial. You know, many people don't even consider the score when they watch a film, but it's actually half in some sense. It could be half of the actual experience. Point is, is that it's a lot of the experience. And so, that is what I want when I make films. Is I want people to feel something. I want people to step into an a world and an environment that they didn't even consider before. I want people to feel things. And for that reason, I have chosen this as my path. There are other ways to do that, but this is the one that this is the path that I think makes the most sense, as a matter of offering a different perspective and allowing the audience to connect with subjects and allowing the audience to be taken to a world that they didn't necessarily anticipate before. I think that's the beauty of filmmaking. To our listeners, I encourage you to visit ClarkForum.org for more information. Once again, on behalf of the Clark Forum, thank you so much for sharing your time and perspective today.